Well, good morning. So as Pastor Jamie said, we are, uh, we're on part three. Uh, last week I, I thought it was going to be the, the final, and then this week I thought for sure it was going to be the final, and now I'm, I'm pretty sure that next week will be the conclusion. So this is part three instead of the conclusion, but we began a couple Sundays ago. The title is, What is Your Excuse? And we began taking a look at some of the distractions in our lives, some of the things that become convenient excuses for putting God first. Sometimes it's conscious and sometimes it's, it's less conscious. It sort of just becomes our default. And as, as Jamie kind of touched on, being a disciple is more than just learning about God's Word. It's more than just mental study. It begins with that. That's a part of it. Um, we say it's not just inf- uh, information, but it's application and it's transformation, right? So it's applying God's Word to our lives. It's not just knowing the Word of God, but it's knowing the Word of God so that it can be living and active in our lives and produce fruit. Not to be hearers of, uh, just hearers of the Word, just readers of the Word, but doers, to go deeper. And so something light this morning, if you join us for the first time ever, we're just going to do an entire sermon on sin. So hopefully you'll come back and you're not too scared. Uh, but the truth is that we should be challenged. In fact, teaching always means typically that we're presented with new information and we process that information and we either you know, discard it or we apply it. But that information has to go against everything that we, every preconceived idea we have. The thing about teaching the Word of God is we know that that's absolute, perfect, revealed truth. So when we're, when we're being taught the Word of God, that's a standard by which we're to look at our lives and to apply this godly living to our lives. And we know that that process, it can be painful and it can be difficult, but I submit to you that it is without a doubt also the most rewarding and beautiful way to live. The fact is that the God who created us in His image knows how we best flourish, God is pro what is best for us, but each one of us are rebellious children in our hearts. And so the word is challenging us because the Lord is calling us to deeper intimacy. That's always what it's about. Always, always, always what it's about is leaving here with a greater appreciation for who Jesus is, deeper in love with Jesus. It's for our ultimate benefit that Jesus died to set us free, not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. And we're going to talk more about that this morning. And so he said being a Christian means we listen to the counsel of Jesus above all else. And we read in Revelation the last few weeks that he rebukes and corrects us only because he loves us. And he invites us to be earnest and sincere and to repent and commit to change. And the result... I promise you, the word promises you, the result is that we'll have a greater intimacy. When we walk in surrender and obedience as a lifestyle, and that's what it is. It's surrender, it's repentance, surrender, obedience. That's a cycle. God does not want a bunch of religious people doing stuff out of fear or out of obligation or out of tradition or out of guilt. What God wants is surrendered hearts. He wants a people who say, here I am, use me. So we need to be humble and teachable above all else. And our prayer should be always that the Lord would use our lives for His glory. I've said before, the one thing God gives us is the one thing He wants back, which is our lives. 
And so we begin looking and we'll continue at four reasons why we don't put God first and what the Bible says. We looked at unbelief and busyness. Last week we started looking at sin. Today we're going to focus on that. And then next week we're going to look at fear and we'll kind of wrap up the whole thing with some practical steps to nurture this stuff in our lives. So with that, if we could stand and we're going to transition to, uh, to worship. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us in this moment to be still and to be present. To be changed even now, God, by your spirit. To discard the distractions. To have tunnel vision of you. Father, it's so easy for us to think of the future and think of the past and ignore the present. So be with us here. Meet us in this place in a new, in a new way. Your mercies are new every morning, God. We enjoy those mercies. We're grateful for your faithfulness. So have your way in our hearts, in this place, that we would be messengers of the hope of the gospel wherever we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, worship team. You may be seated. You know, as we sang those words, I surrender, I want to know you more, I thought every single time we gather together, I mean, every single morning we wake up, but particularly every single Sunday, I think that needs to be like our, you know, that needs to be in our hearts, in our minds, on our lips. Just that phrase, I surrender, I want to know you more. Because you're not here, this message isn't for your spouse, isn't for your neighbor or your friend. This message is for you. It's for me. The Word of God is speaking directly to us. You're not here for anyone else. You're here for you. And I pray that the posture of your heart is I surrender. I, I really surrender. Kind of like, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. I surrender, help my lack of surrender. Because we know deep down inside we want to surrender, but yet we're holding on. I surrender, and Lord, I just want to know you more. That's what it's all about. I want to know you more. And so as I said in the first sermon in this series, I didn't want to rush through this material. I wanted us to take time and to process this prayerfully. And I would encourage you to go back after every Sunday sermon, but particularly when there's a lot, a lot of scripture, read through it, meditate on it. You know, there's, there's folks, I've, I, it's built into the app, but there's folks that send emails as well. If you want the notes, a lot of times I'll talk fast or I'll mention a lot of scriptures. I can certainly send those to you. But I wanted to talk more about sin. And particularly because it's my observation that we tend to view sin from either a lens of legalism or a lens of license. In other words, we either excuse and ignore sin altogether... We say things like nobody's perfect, or we compare ourselves to other people we think are, are worse than us, or we focus on our victories instead of our, our shortcomings and our, our sinful behaviors, or we're so focused on the letter of the law that we ignore the intent or the purpose of the law, and then we become like Pharisees. And this can lead us usually to, to constant despair of our own condition, but it will often lead us to treat others harshly instead of with grace. We can become really good at pointing out everyone else's sin 
and really good at excusing our own. I mean, Jesus addressed this with a particularly memorable illustration, right? In Matthew 7, 3 through 5, when he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Now, have you seen sawdust? A speck of sawdust is barely noticeable. This is an illustration here. Jesus is saying, How do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, as if we can do that anyway, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I don't want to camp out too much on that, but he's not telling us not to, you know, that doesn't mean that we're not to encourage one another. It doesn't mean that if we're in that kind of a relationship, we're not to call each other out on our stuff in a correct, encouraging, loving manner. All, all discipline, all biblical discipleship is with the goal of restoration. It's not punitive. All biblical discipleship is with the goal of restoration. The most extreme form of biblical discipline, Paul says, is when, they're, when somebody's harmful to themselves or the body, is you cast them away. And even with that, you pray for them that they would return to the body. So biblical discipleship is always with the goal of restoration, of encouraging those in the Lord. Last week I mentioned that often as Christians, we remo- remove the boldness of sin in our lives. But we ignore the smaller sins. Yet the smaller ones we don't see are often more harmful than the big stones we know to avoid. You know, I was, I was down by the lake the other day. I, I live on a lake. We got ducks. If you don't know, by now we have ducks. We have ducks. They're a little adventure for us. And so we're down and we're clearing up this little area by the lake. And I remember when we first moved there and I looked and there were, you know, it was overwhelming. There were stones and sticks and I thought, there's no way to ever clear this out. I mean, it would take forever. And so what did I do? Well, I, I put a few of the big stones that were obvious, and I, and I moved them. But then all the little stuff, I mean, it's there. But when you go down, you know, you step on it. It hurts, and you want it to be smooth. And so I thought, you know, every time I go down, I'm just going to grab a few more stones. Grayson was there the other day, and, and Michelle says, is that okay if he moves the stones? I'm like, I want to have him come just to move the stones. So he's picking up stones and throwing them. But every time I do that a little bit, and as I'm doing that, I'm thinking of, that's really what, the, what, the, what it looks like in our lives. You know, we, we clear the big stuff, and then sometimes it's overwhelming. I'm never going to clear this. This is never going to be just sand. And it's not. We're never going to have full sand until we're with Jesus in heaven. So heaven's like a beach. You see what I did there? But what, but... But as time goes on, we've been there for three years, it's a lot clearer now than when we moved there. There's still work to do, and I could say, ah, you know what, I'm going to let the sticks come back and the stones come back, and I'm just going to ignore it because it's too much. Or every time I can consciously go, I'm going to do a little bit so it gets better and better. Because how many people know when you walk in the stand, sand, the small stones hurt. You avoid the big ones, but the small ones, they'll, they'll chip you up. And I thought, what an illustration. Charles Spurgeon said this. I suppose that the nearer we get to heaven, the more conscious we shall be of our imperfections. The more light we get, the more we discover our own darkness. This is why that which is scarcely accounted sin by some men will be a grievous defilement to a tender conscience. 
In other words, stuff that people aren't even thinking of in their own lives. And everybody's in a different place. Everybody's in a, a different level of maturity. They've been walking with the Lord a different time. And we focus on everybody else's stuff. Maybe they're just removing the boulders. Maybe they're new. They just met the Lord. Help them with the boulders. Don't throw more in their way. Right? So he says, uh, it is not that we are greater sinners as we grow older, but that we have a finer sensibility of sin and see that to be sin which we winked, winked at in the days of our ignorance. I'll say that last part again. It is not that we are greater sinners as we grow older. And I'd say older in the Lord as we mature in our faith. But that we have a finer sensibility of sin and see that to be sin which we winked at in the days of our ignorance. The stuff where we went, ah, that's not, that's not really a big deal. I mean, you know, all those years ago, things were different back then. You know what wasn't different back then? The human heart. You know, as much as things change and as much as culture changes and, you know, and, and governments change and all that stuff, you know, it's remained very consistent, the human heart, our rebellion against God. We should, as we grow in the Lord, have a finer sensibility to our own sin. And yet so many of us religious folks, we find victories as things to boast about. Instead of moving on to the next sin in our lives, we want everybody to know. And so Spurgeon said this, I remember hearing a man say that he had lived for six years without having sinned in either thought or word or deed. I apprehended that he committed a sin then if he had never done so before in uttering such a proud, boastful, ignorant speech. But that's what we do, right? We want everybody to know. And I'm not talking about, you know, testifying. I'm not talking about sharing your victories to encourage others. I'm talking about sharing your victories so everybody thinks you're something that you're not. You see, God's Word teaches a, a proper approach to sin. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7.10, and Pastor Jamie mentioned it, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. The sense of sorrow or, or feeling grieved and feeling bad, that can be good because it causes us to evaluate and change, to repent. You're not going to repent of anything unless you feel sorrow for it. So it can be productive and good. But for many of us, what sorrow does is it causes us to wallow in pity and guilt and shame. And that's not of God. It's either the enemy or it's the flesh, but it's not of God. Repentance is not sorrow only. It may be accompanied by sorrow, but sorrow alone accomplishes nothing. Peter was sorry he denied Christ. And he repented. Judas was sorry he betrayed Christ. And instead of repenting, he killed himself. You know, he, he killed himself, but some of us, for years, instead of repenting, have slowly been killing ourselves physically and spiritually. You know, it's interesting that repentance can sound like such a harsh word to many, but it's an essential aspect of the gospel. In fact, it's been called the first word of the gospel. When John the Baptist preached, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus began to preach, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he told his listeners to repent. The title of this message could well have been, What's your excuse? What's our excuse for a lack of repentance? I mean, that's really the question we're asking. And it's the question the Word is asking again to all of us. It's not a question I'm asking to you. Unbelief, busyness, sin, fear are just excuses for not walking in repentance and obedience. Answering the call of Jesus to leave a life focused on self and live a life focused on Him. Sin is a declaration of independence from God. It's deciding that we know what's best. It's so clearly childlike rebellion. It's so clearly, if you look at everything from a parent-child lens, you know, as my kids are younger and I tell them things, I have access to information they couldn't fathom. I've been alive for a long time, not as long as Gary White, but a long time. Sorry, buddy, I just because just you sat back there, you can't escape. But I have a world of experience to draw from. I can try to explain all that, but they're not going to understand when they're younger. And so what do I do? I just tell them what's best for them. And I try the best I can to explain it, to make it so they can understand it. But what's the biggest factor there is they have to believe that I love them and want what's best for them. And if they believe that, then it's easier for them to not necessarily always obey, but at least understand where I'm coming from. And we look at God, and for all our, you know, all our experience and all our wisdom, we're arrogant and we're ignorant. Because we look at God and we still, we doubt that He wants what's best for us, and we think we know better. And that's what this whole series is about. We gotta, I gotta stop making excuses. I mean, we're so good at that. I'm so good at that. Sin is responsible for most of the evil and atrocities in this world. I remember hearing, uh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton, I think, right, Jamie? I don't know. There was a letter in the New York Times, and they said, they, it was an open question to the whole world, what is wrong with the world? And he replied, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. There's an awareness of the problem in the world. Me. My heart. My sin, my actions, my rebellion, my lack of repentance, my pride. That's what's wrong with the world. But we look at everybody else. We're all sin. We will all sin because we are human. But that is not an excuse to ignore or to continue in ongoing patterns of sinful behaviors. That is simply coming up with another excuse not to trust God and put Him first. We know that in the beginning God saw all that He, is, he had made and it was very good. It was perfect. We had a, a perfect relationship with God, but soon sin enters and everything is turned upside down. Everything. Our hearts, the way we, we've preached on this before. But it doesn't just affect our relationship with God. That's a primary thing. It affects our relationship with each other, men and women, our relationship with our brother, our relationship with the world, creation. Everything is disordered. The good news is that into this upside-down world came Jesus to make things right. 
And every sermon, and this one is no exception, should bring us to the hope that can only be found in Christ. What I mean to say is that you cannot discuss sin apart from the gospel, apart from the good news. Sin is why Jesus died on the cross. It's what his blood paid for victory over. Another reason why as a Christian we should not feel constantly wretched about our current selves. And I'm not talking about people who feel no conviction. That's another issue. I don't think you can be saved and not grieved by your sin. I'll say that again because I know that that's tough to hear. But the Bible supports that. I don't think that you can be saved and not grieved by your own sin. But we must realize that we are justified before God because of trusting in what Jesus did, not because of what we do. Being crippled by ongoing despair is ignoring that biblical truth. We said there are two categories of sin described in the Bible, transgression of the law of God and rebellion against God. Not doing what God commands or doing what God forbids. Again, just basically saying, my way is better than his way. And we know sin leads to death. And so I want to spend some time with Paul's letter to the Romans. I want to go through part of Romans 5 and 6. Jamie, I think in like six years or seven years, you guys will get to Romans 5. <laughs> but this is deep stuff. You, you should take that time. You know, we're so quick to get through books of the Bible. And you could take this verse by verse and phrase by phrase. And you can unpack it and unpack it and unpack it. And that's what Jamie's doing come, you know, Wednesday nights. But I want to begin in Romans 5, verse 12. And so turn there into your Bibles because this is a teaching. It's going to be text heavy. And we're going to pull stuff out of it. But I want to start where sin came from. Romans 5, verse 12. If you have a, do we, I don't even think we pass out church Bibles right now. So if you have a church Bible, you're, you're a sinner. Stop. So just find it in your own Bible. Nobody's going to give you the page. Romans 5, verse 12. <clears throat> Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. I've said it this way before. We inherited a sin nature, and we commit sins. People say, oh, you know, it's you not know, fair with Adam. We inherited it. Da, 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 da. Listen. I, we would commit sin anyway. We would actively rebel against God. That's what we do. We inherited a sin nature and we ourselves commit sins because all sinned. Yet we see the hope in verse 17. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of Christ and the gift of righteousness reign in life? Through one man, Jesus Christ. I'm just going to pick out a few things there. Those who receive, that's a qualifier. That's a distinction. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision, abundant provision, ongoing, overflowing resource of grace and the gift of righteousness. You don't earn a gift. It's given to you. It's imparted upon you the righteousness of Christ. That's what justification means through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Verse 18, Paul continues, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul introduces a dangerous idea here. And this is where the sense of legalism and license, you know, people tend to respond or react and they go to extremes. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain a little bit. But Paul introduces this idea, and it's, it's, a, it's a scandalous idea. Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. I mean, we don't even, you know, that, that just, it opens itself up for so much misunderstanding. So he now wonders if someone might take this truth to imply that it doesn't matter if a Christian lives a life of sin because God will always overcome, overcome greater sin with greater grace. Or said this way, if God loves sinners, why worry about sin? If God gives grace to sinners, why not sin more and receive more grace? Now when I say it like that, you might say, well, that's ridiculous. But in fact, in the early part of the 20th century, a Russian monk named Gregory Rasputin, he taught and lived the idea of salvation through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. So he believed that because those who sin the most require the most forgiveness, therefore a sinner who continues to sin without restraint enjoys more of God's grace when he repents for the moment than the ordinary sinner. Talk about taking something out of context. I guess he just stopped reading. And So Rasputin lived a notorious life of sin, and he taught that this was the way to salvation. Now that's clearly an extreme example to illustrate the point Behind Paul's question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, some of us may not say that out loud, but we live that way. Should we continue in sin so that grace may not abound? Well, you know, and again, legalism or license. Well, you know, uh, I'm just going to ignore sin. Oscar Wilde famously said, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Well, until the next time and the next time and the next time and the next time and the death physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way, relationally, that you experience because of living that way. So we might not say it, but we live that way. So the question still confronts us, though. Is the plan of grace safe? Won't people abuse grace? If God's salvation and approval are given on the basis of faith instead of works, won't we just say, I believe, and then live as we please? I'm going to ask that again. Think about this. If the entire, if all of salvation, if God's salvation and approval are given on the basis of faith instead of works, why wouldn't we just say, I believe, and live any way we please? That entire question is built on one flawed, significantly significantly flawed premise. Anyone want to guess what that is? We'll have like a little... Except you, Jeff. You can't guess. Everyone else. Think about it. This is the question. Why don't, why don't we just say, I believe, and live any way we please? I mean, wh- what, what, is, what is implied in that question? 
It ties into kind of everything we've been talking about. What's implied there is this ties directly into our sinful nature, directly into our way of thinking, because we are assuming this. We are assuming that our way of living is a better way to live. Built into that is the lie that if we lived our own way, it would be more fulfilling and more meaningful and we would have a better life. And that is foundationally, absolutely flawed. The idea of saying, well, why don't we just live and say I believe and live any way we please assumes that the way you please to live is a better way than God's telling you. And I, I, as sure as I'm standing here, and I'm sure a whole bunch of people can testify, that is the biggest lie. That lie permeates everything we think and we do. That is at the core of our sinful identity. And that is absolutely a flawed premise. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you delight yourself in the Lord, when you come and you say, I surrender, I want to know him more. And as you know him more, as you understand that the presence of Christ is the great prize, then he will give you the desires of your heart. And you realize that the desires of of your heart ultimately are to delight in him. It's circular. It's a cycle. You've heard me quote Augustine, who said it before this way, love God and do what you please. Love God and do what you please. And I've said before, I love putting that on Facebook because I think everybody who likes it, likes it for the wrong reason. They entirely misunderstand it and they think it's, it's licensed to do whatever you want as long as you say you love God. Or they get really mad at me because they say, you can't just do whatever you want. You can't just say you love God and then do whatever you want. And I just put it there every so often to get people to think. Because that's... Augustine's just basically saying what, the, what Psalm 37 4 says. Remember when I say these four excuses are related? It's always a lack of trusting in God. It's always not believing that God wants what is optimum for us, what is best for us, the very best. The Bible says, in fact, more than we could ask or imagine. That means what God wants for you when you envision your perfect life, and God wants more than you can ask or imagine. Is that materially, is that, sometimes it can be, but it's primarily not. Usually that's a secondary thing. You look at Job, you look at uh, Abraham, you look at Joseph, you look at all these lives, and the material stuff or the, the position in the world was always secondary. That was always an afterthought. It didn't really matter. It was the presence of God in the midst of trials. It was a deepening relationship with him. That was the blessing. That was the prize. You see, you envision your best life, and God has something even better, even greater, more purpose, more meaning, more value, being used more of God, beyond what you can ask or imagine. You have the power to be used of God to impact eternities, to change your neighborhood, your family, 
You know, sometimes it's you're the first in a generation to come to know Jesus. You can change generations and generations of people living in rebellion far from God. And you can come to Christ and God will use you and your testimony and your witness to change that gen- for generations. And somewhere, you know, the other day, I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but the other day we were at a cemetery and it was looking and you would see going back 300, a couple hundred years or so, right? Uh, there, were, there were believers in, in Becky's family line. You know, you see that. You see somewhere along the line, somebody's going to go to a cemetery years from now, and they're going to see you, and you're all going to be with your gravestone. You're going to be the believer. Or they're going to read about your life, and they're going to see, you know, a line of people who maybe, you know, didn't do anything. And then there was this, this person who knew Jesus and changed everything from that generation forward because of their step of faith. Your very best and God's very best aren't even close. They're just not. I mean, if you would have asked me, I don't know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, what my best, I couldn't, I couldn't fathom, couldn't imagine. But we believe the lie. And so we say things like, well, can't I just say I believe and then live the way I want? You could. But then the first part is a lie. The saying I believe is just not true. And you lose. You might fool people and you might come to church, and, but you lose. You don't gain anything. You've lost everything. So we move on to Romans 6. And Paul is going to address this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may, be, may increase? By no means. We are those who, are, who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. If Jesus died to give you new life, why do you want the old one? Why? I mean, again, there's there's sin, there's the world, there's our nature. We're going to look at that. There's reasons why we kind of default to that. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? From a purely secular viewpoint, grace is dangerous. That's why many people don't really teach or believe in grace, and instead they emphasize living by the law. Because they think, well, if you tell people that God saves and accepts them apart from what they deserve, there'll be no more motive to be obedient. I mean, I, I, I know people that think that way. I know people, their, their theology is crafted by that view. And it's a partial biblical understanding. It's not a full view of what Scripture teaches. In my opinion, you simply can't keep people on the straight and narrow, in their opinion, I'm sorry, you can't keep people on the straight and narrow without a threat from God hanging over their head. If they think their position in Jesus is settled because of what Jesus did, then maybe the motivation for holy living is gone. It's an imbalanced way to think. It lends itself to legalism. And ultimately, it diminishes what Jesus did on the cross. Now, I don't think some people see that truth. I think they are truly coming from a place where they're concerned with people. They're concerned with this notion that if you were six and you got emotional and you raise your hand and say, I love Jesus at a camp once in your life, that that means you're saved. And so because of that fear, they come up, you know, they, they're, it's extreme, it's imbalanced. 
It's reactionary. And it's not a full, it's an incomplete understanding. Shall we continue in sin? The verb tense of the phrase continue in sin. The present active tense. It makes clear that here Paul is describing the practice of habitual sin. The big boulders. The stuff we're very conscious of. Sometimes you say, search my heart, Lord. And the Lord goes, well, you know, you were, you were a little prideful there. You were a little arrogant. You're a little, you know, you're a little angry with the way you respond. The little stuff. Search my heart. Some stuff you don't have to say, search my heart, Lord. You just have to look in the mirror, and that one's staring you in the face. That's the habitual, ongoing sin. The stuff that when you heard that this was the message, that thing that you thought about in your heart, that's what I'm talking about. In this first part of Romans 6, Paul writes about someone who remains in a lifestyle of sin, thinking that's acceptable so that grace may abound. With all the love in my heart, that's a lie. That's a lie from the devil. Your, I've always said sin is a cheap substitute for something better God has. You're selling yourself short. And you're constantly going to have this sense or this feeling of, of, you know, one foot in each of what Jesus says is of being lukewarm. Of not making a decision. Of ignoring and making excuses. Remember, repentance, I surrender, I want more of you. Sometimes I think we're so afraid we look at it and we say, this boulder, there's no way. I mean, I'm just never going to be able to lift this thing, and so I'm not even going to try. But you don't understand that Jesus has just been asking you to say, hey, Lord, can you, can you take this from me? I can't do it. Can you do this for me, Lord? Some of us are in love with our own sin, let's be honest. Some of us have sins right now, like, I don't even want to give that one up. Like the rich young ruler, right? And it's the saddest thing in the world to me. Because I want what's best for you. Because God wants what's best for you. And so Paul says, should we remain in sin? And then he says, certainly not. Certainly not might be translated, perish the thought. Away with the notion, never. May it never be. Paul says, that is, that is the furthest thing from that conclusion to be drawn. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? And Paul, listen, Paul is a very, very deep writer. Again, you know, I, Pastor Jamie is going to be going through this because you could stop at every sentence and you could, you could mine it for the gold that's in there. Paul's saying when we are born again, when we've believed on Jesus for our salvation, our relationship with sin is permanently changed. We have died to sin. Therefore, if we've died to sin, then we should not live in it any longer. It simply isn't fitting to live any longer in something you've died to. We who died to sin. At this point, Paul explains what exactly he means by died to sin. And the general point is clear. Christians have died to sin and they no longer live in it. Before our condition before Christ is that we were dead in sin. Ephesians 2.1 says, And he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. He made you alive. You were dead in your sin. Now you're dead to sin. The illustration of the believer's death to sin is baptism. 
Paul says, well, do you know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Or do you know? The implication is that Paul is dealing with fundamental concepts that every Christian would know. He's saying, let me break this down. Let me explain. I'm going to ask you a provocative question that most people are going to not understand, answer the wrong way, and then we're going to go real deep into Christian 101 here. As many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus. The idea behind the ancient Greek word for baptize is to be immersed or overwhelmed by something. Pay attention because this is critical. The Bible uses this idea of being baptized into something in several different ways. When a person is baptized in water, they are immersed or they are covered over with water. When they are baptized with the Holy Spirit, Matthew 3.11, Acts 1.5, says they are immersed or covered over with the Spirit. When they are baptized with suffering, Mark 10.39, they are immersed, they are covered over with their suffering. So Paul is making a very important point here. He's saying that we, when we are baptized, are being immersed or covered over in Christ Jesus. That our identity has changed. That our, our, our fundamental relationship with God, with the world, with sin has been changed. And a lot of times we don't even understand that basic truth. And so we don't even ask Jesus to lift the boulders for a whole bunch of reasons. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead. Water baptizing, being baptized into Christ is a, a, dramatiza a dram dramatization? Duh. A dramatization. It's symbolic. It's acting out the believer's immersion or identification with Jesus in what? In both his death and resurrection. We go down into the water. We're now dead to sin. And we come up and now we're alive in Christ. We're buried with him as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Now we rise and walk in the newness of life. So Paul builds on this idea of going underwater as a picture of being buried and then coming up from the water as rising from the dead. Now listen, baptism is an illustration of a spiritual reality. Baptism does not make that reality come to pass. If someone has not spiritually died and risen with Jesus, all the baptisms in the world won't accomplish that for them. Paul's point is clear. This is the point Paul's making that grounds everything. Something dramatic and life-changing happens in the life of a believer. And it is impossible to die and rise again without changing your life. The believer has, in fact, a real spiritual death and resurrection with Jesus. So, Paul's establishing our identity. He's establishing a new spiritual reality. Because before we draw out any kind of application and how we live this out, it's important that we understand our fundamental identity and our fundamental relationship with God and sin are changed by what Jesus did. We have to understand that. It grounds everything else. So after Paul asks the question, he makes this abundantly clear. You were dead in your sin... Now you're alive in Christ and now you're dead to sin. 
and he's going to build from that foundation. So there's the reality, and I'm not talking about sins that we fight against. On, I'm talking about ongoing, unrepentant sin that we've grown hardened to. I'm talking about the boulders and ignoring the little stones that will make your life constantly uncomfortable. So the question to ask is, and I don't care, again, this message is for you. It's not for your friends. I don't care how long you've been coming to church. I don't care if your family's been a Christian for 50 generations. I don't care if you know the Bible in and out. The question you have to ask is, are you saved? Have you trusted in Jesus? Not have you read your Bible, not have you done religious stuff, but have you given your life over to Jesus? Because if, if, we're talk, if Paul's talking about a new identity, and then he's going to talk about our battle against sin, if, if we don't understand and we're not in Christ, none of this makes sense. It, it not only does it not make sense, but you don't have the resources, and I don't have the resources to apply it. So you can go through life with Christian bumper stickers, and there'll be boulders everywhere, and sometimes you might pick them up, and other times you ignore them, and you trip on them, but you're never going to ask Jesus to lift it because you don't understand your need for him. Because what the law does is it points us to our need for Jesus. The law says the law is good. I mean, David loved the law, meditated on the law. The law is good and perfect and righteous and holy. And against that, against the standard of the word of God, I am wretched. That's my condition before Christ. But because of Christ, I'm a child of God. I'm created in his image. I'm I'm redeemed. I'm being redeemed. I'm being created into the image of Christ. And so if we sit in despair whether we realize it or not and whether it's intentional or not, we are diminishing the work of Jesus on the cross because we are fundamentally misunderstanding the change of who we are. The Bible says we are new creatures, not better creatures, not slightly improved creatures. We are entirely new creations because of Jesus Christ. And so this idea of legalism And this idea of it all being about what you do is dangerous. And for the same reason, this idea of license and it doesn't matter what you do is dangerous because they both deny the power of the cross. This is heavy. This is why I'm taking so much time with it. This is why I wanted one Sunday to just deal with this. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Or are you still Lord? Who's in control? And I don't mean we don't have to battle because every day... Many times a day, it's not once a day, I get a battle, I got to make sure I take myself off that throne. It's like, hey, Jesus, oh, you want, oh, you want to talk to me now? I'm sorry, you've been on the throne all day, I didn't know. Can I come in now? Yeah, so Jesus, come, come on back, I'm sorry. Because we do, we kick him, we cast him aside. Lord, I'll, ne- I'll let you know when I, when I need you again. I'll pray when something goes wrong again. So what does it mean when we say he's Lord? Does it mean we live in this perfect submission and we always, oh yeah, Jesus is always the Lord of my life. Every day, every minute, that's what I sing. Wow, is he really? I mean, it's a religious thing to say. But, But it's acknowledging that he needs to be and it's correcting that. It's saying, you know what, I want to take an honest look at my life and I want to make changes because he's not. And maybe right now you're here and you're like, he's never been. Amen, praise God. This could be the best day of your life. Or you can say, you know, he was for a while, but he's definitely not now. Amen. <laughs> or you can say, you know, I've said for a long time that he, that he is, but when I, when I really think about it, there's a whole bunch of other stuff crowding that throne. 
verses 5 through 10, are considering the implications of our death and resurrection with Jesus. Paul's going to delve into this. For if we have been, that's conditional. Paul's not making the assumption. He's saying, look, if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In other words, if you can't identify with the death to self and the death to sin, you can't walk in the resurrection. You haven't, you haven't gone through the first step. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer live as slaves to sin. And I love that expression because that's what sin does. It, it, it makes us slaves. We are in bondage to it. We are obedient to sin. The, the, the mirage or the, you know, the, this false notion is that you can live as not either a slave to sin or a slave to God. That's the only way you can live. You are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to Jesus. There is no alternative way to live. It's a lie. The world says that, but it's not true. The Bible doesn't say that. You are either a slave to sin and death in yourself or you're a slave to God. But we find, we find these, we're looking for asterisks and fine print and caveats. So we make excuses. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life that he lives, he lives to God. This, I mean, there's so, so much here. United together. This, this expresses a close union. The phrase exactly expresses the process by which a graft becomes united with the life of a tree. Eventually becomes part of the tree. It's one thing. It's a union of the closest sort. The life of Christ flows through us. It flows into us. This is the picture of Jesus abiding in John 15. This is the, you know, the, the, the bread of life. The living water. This is the nourishment. This is the source. This is the relationship we're to have with Jesus that we're to strive for. We focus on all the external secondary stuff, and it's all internal spiritual stuff. The secondary stuff comes as the result of a changed heart, of a changed internal spirit of God, word of God, people of God working in and through us to get us to live the life God wants us to. Paul expressed a similar idea for his own life. Philippians 3, 10 through 11. I love this scripture. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Some are all too ready to be united together in the glory of the resurrection, but are unwilling to be united together in his death. You can't have one without the other. And then, uh, on the other hand, it's too easy for some Christians to focus solely on the crucified life, failing to see that it's a part, though it's an essential part, it's a foundational part of a bigger bigger picture, which is preparation for a resurrection life. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone, again, conditional phrase, 
if anyone would come after me, would pursue me, would constantly adjust their focus to be going after me, to be following me, to be walking in my direction. If anyone would do that, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is clearly, without a doubt, without going to the Greek or without going to a commentary, commentary, it is an invitation to die to self. It is an invitation to a process that is uncomfortable. But that is not the end. That is not the end of that scripture. And I know people love to say that. And I've heard people say it when somebody's going through a difficult time. Well, you know, take up your cross, follow him. There's not, Jesus doesn't stop there. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You say, what, what good is it if you get everything the world has to offer at the expense of your immortal soul and you end up apart from God for eternity? It's an invitation to death to self because Jesus is saying death to self is the only way to really live. To identify with Christ's death and then to identify with Christ's resurrection. Paul's building on this premise that we are dead to sin. It was our anniversary this past Friday, and so we spent it with the youth group, because that's what a good pastoral couple does, right? No, I'm just teasing. See? I'm glad my anniversary was fun for you guys. No. It was planned ahead of time, and my wife doesn't look at dates. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But the night before, the Thursday night, we went for dinner. We had a beautiful time, and it was a great night. And for some reason, we ended up, we went for a nice drive, and it was just a nice night. We ended up at the White's Family Cemetery, and I don't, it actually was really fun and really cool. But we were looking around, and we were reading, and there's all these, you know, gravestones, and some of them, um, you know, very, very old But all this to say, I read this on the gravestone of Gary's uncle. And this is what it says in the back of the stone. It says, remember man, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Remember man and follow me. And I thought it's a sober reminder, isn't it? That life is temporary, it's fleeting, that we make decisions and choices every day with our lives. Who are we following? Who are we giving our life to? Is it Jesus? There was a final thought at the bottom of the stone and it said this. To your request, I'll not consent until I know which way you went. Who are you following? Paul tells us to follow his example as he follows the example of Christ. So are we, are we following after those who are pursuing Jesus? You see, the crucifixion of the old man is something that God did in us. None of us nailed the old man to the cross. Jesus did it. And we're told to account it as being done. But in place of the old man, God gives the believer a new man. The New Testament describes this for us. Ephesians 4.24, the new man which was created according to God and righteousness and true holiness. 
Colossians 3.10, the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of who created him. The new man who's renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. That the body of sin might be done away with. God uses death to the old man, to the sin nature, to liberate us from sin. He's saying the dead man can no longer have authority over us, so we're told to remember and account the old man as crucified with him. Two of the places in the New Testament which mentions the old man remind us to consider him done away with. Tells us to put off the old man as something dead in God in Ephesians 4. And Colossians as well, uh, chapter 3. Strictly speaking, we don't battle the old man. We reckon him dead. Spurgeon said this, Evil enters us now as an interloper and a stranger and works sad havoc, but it does not abide in us upon the throne. It is an alien. It is despised. And no more is it honored and delighted in. We are dead to the rating power of sin. You see, there's a different relationship now with sin and evil. Where once we were unaware of it, we didn't even think to fight against it. We, we weren't sure of our condition. Now there's still evil. There's still sin. But it's an interloper. It's a stranger. We're not comfortable in it anymore. So then we say, if the old man is dead, why do I feel a pull to sin inside? I know it's getting warm. Bear with me. Everybody still all right? I know this is heavy. We're good still? Because well, we, can, we can do point pop four, five, six. I don't care. No, let me make a few more points and, and we'll... Uh... So if the old man is dead, why do I feel a pull to sin inside? Our inner being has desires and impulses and passions, and these are played out in our mind, in our will, in our emotions... You're sitting here and you're saying, okay, I understand the theological truths of what Paul's saying. I know my new identity. I understand that I'm dead to sin. But yet everything inside me, every default setting I have wants to do the wrong thing in my mind, in my will, in my emotion. Here's some principles, some things we need to know. The flesh, the flesh is a problem in the battle against sin because it has been expertly trained in sinful habits by three sources. First, the old man before he was crucified with Christ trained and imprinted himself in the flesh. In other words, everything I did and how I lived before I met Jesus, those habits and those, you know, those ritual, everything I did, that's imprinted on me. That's dead spiritually, but that's still, uh, that's still part of my identity. And then secondly, the world system, which exists in a spirit of rebellion against God, continues to have influence on my flesh. And finally, the third thing is the devil that seeks to tempt and influence the flesh towards sin. So this is important. This is very important because these are, we're going to get into application next week, but these are truths. Understanding our identity, understanding our relationship with God's change, with sin's change. And then this reality of knowing, okay, if that's the case, then what are these reasons? Why do I still sin? Why do I still do these things? The old man imprinted himself, the world system has an influence, and the devil seeks to tempt us. If you're not aware that those things are battling against you, then you're already dead in the fight. If you don't see with those spiritual eyes, so God calls us in participation with him to actively do day by day with the flesh just what he has already done with the old man. 
to crucify it and to make it dead to sin. And Galatians 5.24. You see, the new life we're granted isn't given so we can live it unto ourselves. We're given a new life to live to God. To be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And as the Spirit of God and the Word of God is given authority in our lives to govern us, we are changed from within. I'm going to close with this illustration if the worship team wants to come up. Here's a, an example. It's a very cruel example of this il- an illustration that we are free but our choices are what imprison us now. That Christ has set us free, so we're free. In the 14th century, two brothers fought for the right to rule over a dukedom in what is now Belgium. The elder brother's name was Reynald, and he was commonly called Crassus, which was a Latin nickname meaning fat, for he was horribly obese. After a heated battle, Reynald's younger brother Edward led a successful revolt against him and assumed the title of Duke over his lands. But instead of, instead of killing Reynald, Edward devised a curious imprisonment. He had a room in the castle built around Crassus with only one door. The door was not locked, the windows were not barred. And Edward promised Reynald that he could regain his land and his title anytime he wanted to. All he would have to do is leave the room. The obstacle to freedom was not in the doors or not in the windows, but with Reynald himself. Being grossly overweight, he could not fit through the door, even though it was near normal size. So all Reynald needed to do was to diet down to a smaller size and walk out a free man with everything he had before his fall. However, his younger brother kept sending him in an assortment of tasty foods. I don't know. This is a true story. I can't imagine this guy thought through all this. And Reynald's desire to be free never won against his desire to eat. Some would accuse the Duke of being cruel to his older brother, but he would simply say, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave when he so wills. But Reynald ended up in that room for 10 years until Edward himself was killed in battle. It's a, a horrible situation, but an accurate illustration of what many Christians experience. Jesus has legally set us free forever, and we may walk in that freedom from sin whenever we choose. And we're going to get into this next week when Paul talks about present your members, your instruments of as, of. Not as unrighteousness to sin, but as righteousness. Because we continue to yield our appetites to the service of sin. And Paul is going to tell us next week, not only are we not to present ourselves in service to sin, in other words, not only are we not to do the wrong things, but we are now instead to put on the new man, to present our bodies as instruments of righteousness. We are now to do the right thing. And so next week we'll, we'll get into that and then we'll end whenever we, whenever we end, right? It's getting warm, so why don't we stand now?